following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Como esta polcayo? Bring you greetings from our uh, Filipino brothers and sisters from Solidale Gloria Church and also Higher Rock Christian Church in the Philippines. Uh, I've been back almost two weeks now and it was my earnest desire to be able to speak last Sunday, uh, but the Lord saw fit to give me a special souvenir from my trip. Um, I'm not referring to this barong, which is a formal attire in the Philippines. Actually, the little souvenir I brought back was a stowaway inside my chest and uh, gave me bronchitis and some other fun things. But you know what? At least it was a free souvenir, so I'll take that. But despite how sick I got, um, you know, I, I have to say the trip was well worth it. Uh, we were so greatly blessed by our time there. And uh, I think that the Lord also used us to be a a blessing to our brothers and sisters there. I want to read part of an email that one of the pastors uh, sent to me. Hi, Pastor Tim. We thank God for how he has used you and your team to minister to to us here in Davao City. Your team has been an inspiration to our church to be more proactive in evangelizing and ministering to our community. Give my regards to Michael, Nestor, Sean, and Janina. Please extend our thanks also to your church who supported you and allowed you to minister to us here in the Philippines. May the God of all grace make your church abound in every good work. Yours in Christ, Brother Jerem. And I would, along with Brother Jerem, like to extend uh, my gratitude to you and the team would I know as well for sending us, for participating not only financially but also prayerfully. We are very grateful for that. It was a wonderful trip. Uh, When we were there, we came alongside uh, two different churches. One was in the very southern portion of the Philippines in Davao City. Uh, Another was in the Manila area to the north in Quezon City. Uh, We conducted two conferences at each church. One was one on parenting, another on discipleship, and then also throughout the week we were involved in several different outreaches that took place there. Uh, We also had a chance to eat some of the local delicacies like balut, uh, any of you know what balut is, by the way? Yeah. What is it, brother? Uh, yeah. Let me just say duck embryo, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, Sean Staples, wherever you are, we're still waiting for you to eat one of those, brother. So um, uh, there's a rogue video, I think, on the Internet if you want to see what that looks like. But um, the team is going to give you a full report in a couple of weeks just of our trip. But this morning, I wanted to share some of the things, some of my reflections, and how my trip over there impacted me. You know, it's ironic that Pastor Germ had mentioned how uh, we were an encouragement to them to be more proactive in sharing the gospel. I've got to say, honestly, it was really they who inspired me to be more evangelistic. You know, they reminded me of the believers from the church in Philippi, and I thought this morning that we would take a look in the book of Philippians. Yes, what other book would we turn to after a trip from the Philippines than the book of Philippians? And as happened first hour, I'm sure it will happen here. I may interchange the two words uh, by accident. Of course, the Philippines and the city of Philippi are separated by thousands of miles and also thousands of of years, But again, after spending time with our dear brothers and sisters there in the Philippines, I see much of, of their heart in the heart of the Philippians. And also, too, in Paul's heart and what he expresses to the Philippians in this wonderful letter, particularly as it relates to the gospel. Because that is what this letter to the Philippians is all about. It's really about the gospel, about having a passion for the gospel, about what can hinder it, and how to overcome those hindrances. Philippi uh, was a city that was so named by Philip II back in 356 B.C. Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. And he named this little village uh, modestly after himself, but it was an important village because it was in an area that was filled with gold mines. 
And the many gold mines that were there actually funded the incredible expansion under his son, Alexander the Great. Philippi was later taken by the Romans. And in 42 BC, it became the site of a very important battle in Roman history. The battle between Antony and Octavian, uh, their armies against those of Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. The battle was significant for Rome because as a result of that battle, which Antony and Octavian won, the Roman Republic was ended and it ushered in the time of the emperors. Octavian uh, became Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. And while Philippi then enjoyed a distinct and unique status that became a Roman colony, uh, many of the soldiers from that battle uh, resided there, it wasn't special for that reason. Philippi wasn't special even because of the many historical events that took place there. No, Philippi became a special place on that day when the Apostle Paul arrived, came upon a women's prayer meeting alongside a river, spoke with a woman named Lydia and shared the gospel with her. And that businesswoman became a believer. And then she shared the gospel with her household and they became Christians. And Paul shared the gospel again with the jailer who was about ready to kill himself. And the gospel spread again into his home. What made Philippi special was the church of God was born there. The church of Philippi was a special church because it cared greatly for Paul. Paul had a a dear affection for these people. They often would give sacrificially of themselves to care for him, to support the ministry that he was involved in. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells of how to the Corinthians of the example of the Philippians and how they gave sacrificially well beyond their means to care for him. About eight years after Paul's first visit to Philippi, He finds himself under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. And when the Philippians heard of it, and they heard of Paul's situation, they again collected support and and funds and sent them to Paul to help him while he was there. They sent them at the hand of their faithful brother Epaphroditus. He took the 800 plus mile trip from Philippi all the way to Rome to bring their gift and to bring word of what was happening in the church And Paul was extremely grateful for them. We see in Philippians 4.10, he describes his rejoicing at their kindness and concern. And it is that spirit and that tone in which we read this entire letter from Paul to these Philippians. One of joy, one of thankfulness, one of gratitude. In fact, over 15 times in this letter, Paul describes, talks about joy and rejoicing. In fact, a verse that we often recite uh, repeat is found in Philippians 4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. But what's driving this joy? Was it simply the, the gift that they gave Paul? Did he write only to express his gratitude for that, or was there something else? And as you go through this letter, we find that, that his joy was really based upon the gospel, and primarily with the centerpiece of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. So from this letter, we're going to see three key principles this morning for gospel-centered living. These principles are going to be outlined uh, in the will be outlined in the participation in the gospel, the hindrances to the gospel, and the advancing of the gospel. I want you to look first at Philippians one verse three, where we see first the participation in the gospel. Paul begins his letter after his greeting in verse three with these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, <coughs> excuse me, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you all in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel You all are partakers of grace with me. Again, we see here how he he begins with a tone of joy, of gratitude, describing his gratitude to God for these beloved Philippians. But what's driving those feelings? Notice in verse 5, Paul says there, it is in view of their participation in the gospel. That is their fellowship, their cooperation, their sharing with him in the gospel. He repeats the same idea if you look at the end of verse 7 where he says, You are all partakers of grace, implied the grace of the gospel with me. 
But what does he mean by that phrase, participation in the gospel? Again, it's this idea of of fellowship in the gospel, but, but what is he talking about? It certainly would include the idea of them being saved, right? And now the fact that they have fellowship with him as being part of the family, the body of Christ, would also include his joy at their continuing maturing in Christ. He mentions that in verse 6. Certainly the phrase would also refer partly to their financial support of him. They were participating in the gospel and how they were supporting and caring for Paul in his ministry. Their participation would also involve their prayer for him. Paul mentions that prayer later in chapter 1, verse 19. Indeed, these are all would be all part of their participation in the gospel. But there's one more aspect, and I think key aspect, that Paul has in mind here. Because when Paul uses this word gospel in his writings, evangelion is a Greek word, when he uses this word gospel, he's referring not just to the message itself, but also to the proclamation of the message. I think a good way to translate it would be gospeling. And notice here that he says to the Philippians, he doesn't say in view of your participation in my gospeling, but he says in view of your participation in the gospeling. You see, Paul was encouraged by them, not that they had responded in faith to the message of the gospel that he brought. He was encouraged, not just that they supported him as he proclaimed and spread that message. He was encouraged that they too were active evangelists. Paul was encouraged that they too uh, participated in declaring Christ's forgiveness, a free forgiveness that he offers for any who would repent and believe and put their faith in him. You know, and just as Paul was encouraged by these Philippians and their participation in the gospel, I too was encouraged by many of our Filipino brothers and sisters that we met when we were over there and how they were actively engaged in gospeling their community. I brought a few pictures, so we'll see more later in a couple of weeks, but I brought a few pictures just uh, to express some of the ways that I was encouraged. One of the ministries that the church has was a ministry... Uh, no, they weren't raptured. It's the next slide. Um, <coughs> uh, someday. Maybe maybe soon. Um, but one ministry we visited was at a... Uh, this was a waiting room at a radiation uh, center, a treatment center, that's only one of two of them in the island of Mindanao. Uh, this was a Bible study that was started there that they have every week. The same kind of thing, imagine if we went down to the urgent care waiting room here over by St. Joe's and just started having a Bible study every week. How do you think that would fly? <laughs> but that's what they have. So it's a public, um, a public place, and each week they, they share things from the Scriptures, and we were invited and came to that. It was very encouraging to be there. Uh, there's a picture here of the team that runs the clinic along with the, our team. And these two ladies on the left here are the ones that coordinate the study. This, this uh, lady is a doctor who uh, actually runs the clinic. And the one next to her is another doctor. And they give of their time each week in order to share the gospel and, and share from the word in this clinic. Well, during the time that we were there, after we had a chance to share the gospel, there was one of the patients over on the side who was weeping. And crying just uh, in hearing the message. And so one of these doctors went over to that lady. I think I have a picture. There we go. And she began just graciously and tenderly coming alongside of her and sharing with her more of the hope of the gospel. I think that woman came to church on Sunday as a result. But, you know, I was just so impressed and encouraged by this woman, this doctor, who not only is giving of her skills as a physician for the body, but also as a physician for the soul. Just a blessed time. We also shared at a, another hospital, a hospital that is owned by these two. This is a husband and wife. Both happen to be doctors and both own a hospital. And what's encouraging about them is that each month they have a Bible study at their hospital and they require all the employees to attend. In fact, they have it written in their contracts. And in addition to that, yeah, they don't get paid if they don't show up. <laughs> The husband, Ronnie, told me that they also make the vendors go because he says, you know, they have to we have to listen to them. So they're going to have to listen to us. But, you know, I was so encouraged by these two faithful doctors. Here's a couple of pictures. This was the the meeting that we had. And then uh, Brother Michael was going at it there as he was preaching the gospel. But, you know, I was so encouraged by these two doctors because they're, they're running a hospital. So they're managing all of these nurses and other doctors. They have patients of their own. And in addition to that, they were overseeing uh, the construction of a new facility that would more than double their capacity. 
But despite all of that, this meeting was their priority. You see, they, they aren't in it to make money. They're clearly on a mission to use their resources for gospeling. Another thing that they did while we were there is these same two doctors conducted a free health clinic outside of the church. They got a bullhorn uh, uh, one of the days and they just announced to everybody in the community, if you need health care, come on in for free. Many folks there can't afford it. And so these people would just come in from the community in droves. And, and there were other people from the church that would sit with these folks and assist them with their medical issues and also share the gospel with them as well as they were waiting to see a physician. Just amazing, incredible. There was another ministry outreach of the church to a local women's prison. We were able to, to go there. And they've seen several ladies there in that prison come to Christ. In fact, there are two women now attending the church after they got out of prison were able to come. And as I said, we had a chance to visit them as well. Oops, how did that one get in there? Uh, um, yes, we had a little trouble there. Uh, you know, those rowdy Americans, they show up and who knows what's going to happen. Let me skip this picture. Um, actually, this brother is uh, one of the guards to the men's prison. He's also a part of the, the church there. Notice he's smiling. It kind of gives the picture away. But, you know, I was amazed at that facility. The women's side, there's uh, places for 70 women. They have over 220 women there. The men's side, there's 300. Uh, it's capacity of 300. It's almost 1,700 men. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting situation. But here's this little church with this Bible study every week, the message of the gospel going forth. Again, I was so encouraged by their participation in the gospeling. And at the same time, I was also convicted because it made me think about my own lack of focus at times. I mean, these people were driven. They were driven to make known the name of Jesus Christ in their community. They were motivated to proclaim him with all those around him. And there was one time we were waiting for uh, uh, someone in our group to, to come to the van. And this lady who was taking us around to the various places, she hops out of the van. And there's this guy selling plants on the side. And she goes up, buys a little plant, and then pulls out a track and starts sharing the gospel with this guy in the few minutes as we were waiting. Just, just this overarching compassion, uh, passion and consuming desire. It's the same drive that we see in the Apostle Paul as he expresses in this letter. If you look in Philippians 1 verse 12, we see him say these words. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. See here, Paul addresses the Philippians' concern. They certainly were concerned for him as he was in prison, not only for his physical well-being, but knowing, as they knew Paul, man, a man passionate and consumed with proclaiming the gospel. And here he was confined. And they're thinking, how is he going to deal with that? How is he doing? And notice Paul here says that he rejoices because instead of his imprisonment thwarting the gospel, it actually advanced it. That word progress there, or prokope, it means to advance, to move forward, especially in the midst of difficulty or struggle. Brother Kempis likes this word prokope so much that he named one of the fellowship groups after it. But this this idea of advancing of progressing, of moving, even in the midst of adversity. And Paul's circumstance was that very situation. And it had caused the gospel actually to progress in ways that it never would otherwise. I mean, think of it. He brings up several of them. One situation there, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And do you think any of those guys happen to hear the gospel? Yeah, in fact... After a year or so, Paul says that the whole Praetorian Guard has heard word of Christ. Unbelievable. The Praetorian Guard is not just any ordinary group of soldiers. It's a specialized group of over 9,000 soldiers who were specially appointed to protect Caesar and also to police Rome. 
Later on in chapter 4 and verse 22, we learn that there were even now believers within Caesar's home. Now think about that. Could Paul have just shown up in Rome one day, gone up to Caesar's palace, you know, and, hello, I'm here to share the message of Jesus Christ. Here's a track. Caesar, what do you think might happen to you when you die? You think Paul would ever have gotten that opportunity? And yet here he is chained in prison. And because of his passion for the gospel, it advanced through him even into Caesar's household. Amazing. Just amazing. In addition to that, Paul mentions how the gospel was progressing by those who were inspired by Paul's courage. And he even mentions those who were trying to one-up Paul, who were sharing the gospel. Perhaps they were trying to pad their congregations or something like that. But Paul didn't care. Again, they weren't using a wrong message or wrong methods, but their motives were wrong. But Paul didn't care about that. He said, you know what? Either way, Christ is being proclaimed, the true, genuine, risen Christ. And in this I rejoice. I mean, this guy's an amazing example, isn't he? He's been in prison at least three years by this point. He suffered so much for the cause of Christ, and yet Paul didn't let his circumstances hinder him. Even while in chains, the gospel advanced. We see at the end of Philippians chapter 1 that the Philippians too encountered opposition, but they did not let their circumstances hinder them from gospeling. And beloved, we too must not let our circumstances hinder us. You know, I showed... This picture a moment ago, the doctor who had come alongside the woman who was crying. And, you know, this this doctor, her husband was a patient in that very clinic. About three years ago, her husband died of cancer. And right after that, this woman is the one who started that Bible study in that very same clinic. You know, she did not let her tragic circumstances hinder her. It's a wonderful, wonderful woman. You know, as I reflect on her example, as I reflect on the example of Paul and the example of the Philippians, I ask myself, Tim, how are you doing? And I need to ask you as well, saints, how are you doing? How is your participation in the gospel? If Paul were to write a letter to our church, would he begin with the same words, I thank my God in in view of your participation in the gospeling? You know, there are opportunities every day, aren't there? Jack, aren't there opportunities every day, brother? John Rattuno, I was having lunch with him one day. Uh, at the end of the meal, as the waiter came up, gave us a bill, uh, John pulls out one of those Gideon Bibles, you know. John's one of those Gideon guys. And he just starts uh, showing the waiter the inside cover. He, he walks through the gospel with him before he grabs the bill. And then he hands the waiter the Bible. You know, I just thought, wow, that that's... You know, that's taking advantage of an opportunity, isn't it? The waiter was listening, and we had a great conversation as a result of that. Again, that's gospeling in everyday life. During our home remodel, we've had many opportunities to share even with the inspectors. I mean, they have to be there, right? And fortunately, they haven't given us more stuff to do as a result, but uh, just an opportunity that we have. What about you? What are you doing with the opportunities around you? Those of you with children in your home, you have gospel opportunities all the time. You have people at your work, in your neighborhoods, in your families who need the Lord, don't you? Or what about people we come across in restaurants and coffee shops, grocery stores, doctor's offices, salons? My uh, wife and uh, Lisa Hughes, uh, there was a lady in Idaho, a hairstylist that they were going to, and they were both sharing the gospel with her. She ended up coming to know the Lord and then her whole family after her just from conversations while cutting hair. There's a team of faithful evangelists who preach and hand out tracts every Saturday night at the theaters, right, Sister Sharon? Every Saturday. You could join them once in a while, right? Is there space out there for more? Jack, could a few more show up? All right, Mark, what do you think? All right, well, there you have it. Just come out, pray, share share tracts with them, or if you want to get up on the box and preach, Hey, have at it. But there's opportunities all around us. We haven't been thrown out there yet. Even if you're laid up at home, maybe as you're because of your health or certain circumstances, you can still write letters, emails, blogs, make phone calls. There's opportunities all around us. In fact, I don't know if I've shared this with you before. One that 
I think sticks out in my mind. Uh, a friend of mine in college, middle of the night, we get this phone call. It's one of my roommates. He answers the phone. It's a crank caller. And rather than hang up, my friend starts this conversation with the guy. He spends 45 minutes sharing the gospel with him. And you know what? He showed up at church the next day. It's unbelievable. You never know. Ladies don't do that. But guys, if a crank caller calls up, hey, you know, what's going to happen to you after you die? It was unbelievable. The guy ended up still coming to church. You know, and all of us have opportunities to pray, don't we? We have a prayer sheet. There are many names of friends and family of those in our body that we can be praying for, for opportunities, praying for God to soften hearts. It's never too late. It's my prayer just that the Lord would move in us to be on a mission for Jesus all the time. Amen? In addition to participation in the gospel, Paul also shows in this letter to the Philippians the hindrances to the gospel. Because Paul understands that the enemy's not going to sit idly by as hell is being emptied. He will attack actively from both outside of the church and also from the inside. Paul addresses the outside attack in chapter 3. If you look there with me in Philippians 3.1, he brings up one of the hindrances to the gospel will come from the outside. <clears throat> he says there, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Here Paul begins this chapter with a warning. It's a warning so solemn that he repeats it three different times. Beware, beware, beware. That is watch out for, be on the lookout for. And he describes these people that he calls the dogs or the false circumcision. That's literally the mutilation or evil workers. He's referring here to a group of called the Judaizers, who said that you had to follow the Mosaic law, that you had to be circumcised in order to be righteous before God. Yes, they would say that, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but you had to keep the law and become a Jew before he could become your Messiah. And Paul's battling these guys all the time. Their false teaching that they had spread. And he was solemnly warned many churches. The church of Galatia fell victim hard to these individuals acts 15 describes how the apostles and the elders in jerusalem are wrestling with this very issue and those who were trying to say you had to keep the law in order to become saved but why did paul have such a problem with them was the law of moses bad was circumcision an an evil thing that needed to be eradicated was paul saying that we must throw out the old testament that it doesn't matter anymore that it's not even good for us No, that wasn't Paul's issue at all. In fact, he said in Romans 7, the law is good. He said in Romans 15 that the Old Testament is extremely profitable for the believer. In fact, he often quoted from the law and from the Old Testament in many of his letters. Because you see, the issue wasn't the law itself, was it? It was relying on the law to save. That's what bothered him. In fact, he goes on in verses 3 to 6 of chapter 3, and he describes his resume. Uh, many, uh, many know this resume. He talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, he got an A-plus in law-keeping. He graduated at the top of his class. But then in verse 7, after describing all of these achievements and how he had made it to the top, he was the guy as far as spiritual and, and holiness and law-keeping was concerned. But then in verse 7, he says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through what? Through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, Paul looks back, right, on all of his holy achievements, all of his law keeping, all of his good works. All of that he sees as rubbish, as trash, as junk, literally dung, poop is what he calls it 
And yes, here I can say that in this passage. That's how Paul viewed it. But why? Again, why? Didn't God give the law? And didn't he expect and desire us to keep that law? In Romans 7, Paul said that the law is good. In Galatians 3, he describes the law and in description, he, he portrays it you know, as this tutor. It's like, it's like a mirror. The law is meant to show us our sin, not to be a means to pay for our sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. More accurately, in the Hebrew, a menstrual cloth. You see, when someone says they can pay for their sins by doing good deeds or by performing religious acts, by keeping the law, that's repulsive to God. These are very graphic and strong descriptions. Bluntly put to God, it is like dung or a used maxi pad because it cheapens what Christ did to pay for sin. If we can earn our salvation, do we need Jesus? Do we? If we can earn it? If we can pay for our own sin, if we can cleanse our own sin, do we need his shed blood? We don't. When someone says they can be cleansed from their sins by some other act, by some other means, that's to spit upon the cross. It's to say to God, you know what? The sacrifice of your beloved son was really unnecessary, God, because I am good enough on my own to pay for my sin. Or, Jesus, that's good that he died. I do need that, but, but I, I'm helping him out. But you know what? The perfect and holy sacrifice of his dear son is the only thing that can pay for our sins, right? That's it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. There is no ritual. There is no ongoing prayers there is no religious activity there are no good works there are no religious deeds that can bring us righteousness before god none nothing that's why paul and isaiah were were so graphic in how they described any who would rely on something on their own on their own good works in order to be right with god paul said in philippians 3 9 that we are saved we are found in him when our righteousness is not sought through the law, but through faith in Christ alone. It's God's grace alone. Paul brought this up all the time, didn't he? In fact, Tim mentioned earlier, he quoted from Titus 3, 5, where God says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast galatians 2 16 a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in the lord jesus why am i bringing all this up i think many of us know this we better all know it i'm bringing this up because what do people say most people when you ask them why do you think you're going to heaven what do they say i'm a good person Right? I said that. And I know you did too. I've done more good than bad. A scale, you know, I'd be, I'd be okay, I think. See, this is common. Paul's speaking here of something that is ingrained within every person, really. And that is this idea that, that I can do something to earn God's favor. And every religion on this planet, apart from genuine Christianity, every religion has within it some work, some ritual act, some religious deed, some human effort, some religious practice that's attached to it in order to be right with God or to be saved or go to heaven or to have eternal rest. Every single one, every single religion except genuine Christianity, which says only through Jesus alone that's it and we have to beware of any who would teach that we can be righteous by our own efforts just like paul warns and beloved please listen now we must be extremely clear when we present the gospel to someone else that they never think it is something that they're doing or have to do in order for god to be happy with them and forgive them you hear that if you tell them anything else they're not hearing the genuine message. 
It is Christ and Christ alone who saves. Paul warned again that this works-based righteousness is a severe hindrance to the gospel. It is a hindrance that has been brought from outside the church, a heresy that Satan has hatched. But Paul also warned of an under-hindrance to the gospel, and that is a hindrance from within the church. He hints at it back in chapter 1, verse 27. If you look back there with me, after focusing in the first part of the chapter on his passion for the gospel, on his desire to live for Christ, his motivation to preach the gospel, then he says these words in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only conduct yourselves, Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is a key part of the letter. It's a key transition for a few reasons. One is that this is the first place in the letter where Paul gives an imperative. This is the first command or exhortation given from Paul to his readers. What is the command that he gives here? Right at the beginning, what is it? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? Very similar to what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. I urge you, therefore, my beloved brethren, to, he says the same thing, to walk in a worthy manner of your calling. But here he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't stop there. Notice that he describes what that worthy conduct looks like. If you go toward the end of verse 27, what does he say there? Notice, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's bringing up a key point. If you go just a few verses later down to chapter 2, verse 1, notice what he says there. He continues on with this idea. Therefore, if or since there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being what? Of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he mentions and describes that wonderful text on the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation and in his death. And then look at verse 14 of chapter 2. He continues with this theme. He says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now some take this command, do all things without grumbling or disputing, as a grumbling or complaining, disputing that is directed to God. But again, the the theme, the the context ever since verse 27 of chapter 1 has been within one another and the need to be unified as a body. Here he's speaking in verse 14 to not not be grumbling, complaining, or arguing with each other. That's his focus. The question is, why did this shift? Why does Paul shift from, in chapter 1, his focus on the gospel, his focus on their participation in it, on his joy at seeing it advancing, on his desire to live for Christ no matter what, and he shifts from that to this whole topic of unity. Is that just the next topic he wants to cover in the letter? Okay, I'm going to hit the gospel. I'm going to talk about unity. I'm going to talk about works-based righteousness. Or are these somehow connected? Indeed, they are connected. There is a connection between the gospel and gospeling and unity. Paul draws it out here in verse 14 of chapter 2. Look there again. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And notice, so that, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom what? You appear as lights in the world. You see the connection? You see the connection? What's at stake here? What's he talking about? What are the consequences of conflict within the body, between two believers in the body and the home? 
What results from selfishness, complaining, arguing with one another? How would disunity affect the church's witness? See what he's getting at here? He brings it up again in chapter 4. Look there with me. I'm skipping all around here. Chapter 4, verse 1, this topic comes up again. After speaking of uh, not being aware of those who preach a works-based righteousness and focusing on on following Christ, he says these words in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia, I urge Suntiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's a very interesting verse. We see here uh, that when Epaphroditus came and brought Paul that gift, he also brought news of things that were happening in the church. And in that, Paul found out about these two dear women who had a conflict with one another. They were two prominent believers, and as he mentions here, were key in the gospel ministry that were involved in ministering alongside him. And you know, often these, this verse, I think, is treated as uh, uh, some remarks that Paul just decided to throw in last minute, some things that popped into his head that he wanted to make sure he communicated. But you know what? I think in many ways, Paul has been aiming his entire letter for this specific application. He was setting a foundation for this very issue. The conflict between these two women and the impact that it would have on the body was of major concern to Paul. Notice Paul here repeats twice. He says, I urge Yodia. I urge Syntyche. It's this idea of I appeal, I beg, I, I earnestly entreat both of you. And he repeats it. He says to live in harmony. Literally, be of the same mind. Be unified. Agree. And then he asks others to come alongside these women and help them resolve this conflict. You see, unity was a big deal to Paul. A big deal. It is a big deal for us. Not because it's just nice having no conflict going on. You know, peace. having peace is rather peaceful. And that's nice. You know, when there's unity also, it's easier to get things done too. But unity is not a big deal for those reasons. It's a big deal primarily because of its impact on our witness. That's why it matters. Because it affects our gospeling. If we don't work at being of the same mind, regarding one another is more important than ourselves, of being humble towards one another, of striving to be one, of of having one purpose, being united together, being at peace with one another. If we don't work hard at these things, we blow our witness, beloved. We blunt our gospel message. We weaken our impact. We bring dishonor to Christ. That's why unity matters. And that's why Paul was so concerned about it. It was a major theme in many of his letters. In fact, the letter to the Corinthians, that was the basis of the letter. Remember, he begins it with, you know, they're, they're disputing about, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And I'm, you know, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Or, okay, maybe there was a couple. But he said, the whole focus there was unity. It's unity. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he gives that wonderful illustration of the body of the church being like a body that's, that's working together. Ephesians, that was a book full of this theme of unity. In fact, remember, it was the first response that Paul gives in chapter 4, after the first three chapters and his focus on the, what they have in salvation, and then in chapter 4, how they are to respond in salvation. What's the first response? He focused on unity. It's important. That's why... He kept going back to it. And he goes back to it again here in Philippians. That's why we keep going back to it. Brother Kempis mentioned this last week. That's why we've had many sermons over the last few years on the importance of unity, on the need for the body to be one, for us to be one, for us to work together, for us to deal biblically with conflict. And why is that? This a one-pony show? Is that all we know how to talk about? Because if you let issues fester, if you're at odds with one another, 
if you continue in conflict and hostility with a fellow believer or with fellow believers in your home, it doesn't just cause hardship and difficulty in your life and in others' lives. No, it's more serious than that. You're damaging the gospel. You're hindering its progress. You're making its message less effective. You're getting in the way of its effectiveness. And I I certainly don't want to be a reason for the gospel message being thwarted here. Do you? Do you? And as Paul appealed to them, I, I appeal to you. I entreat you. I, I beg you, if there are any ongoing conflicts that you're in, lay down your arms. Just stop. Pursue peace. Pursue unity. Work through that conflict. Whether it's with another in the body or in your home. Do it not just for the sake of having peace in your own situation, but for the sake of the gospel. So that we not get in the way. That's why Paul was so concerned. He wrote this letter and he was so full of joy at the testimony and the active participation of these Philippian believers in his ministry and in the gospel in their own community. And he heard about these two dear women who were at odds with one another and he knew what could happen if it doesn't get dealt with. And that's why he wrote this letter to encourage them to pursue unity, to be one, to be of the same mind. And that doesn't mean that we ignore sin, that we just avoid conflict at all costs, that we just, you know, blindly agree on everything. Don't rock the boat. Don't bring up issues. Just go with the flow, all right? That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what Paul is saying. There are times we need to confront one another's sin, right? Jesus commands us to do that. There are times when we need to address matters of doctrinal truth. Truth matters. But the point is, it all has to do with how we go about working through that conflict. And that brings us to the third and last point this morning, the advancing of the gospel. We've seen the participation in the gospel and the hindrances to the gospel. Lastly, let's look at the advancing of the gospel, and that is by removing those hindrances and dealing with them. Regarding the hindrance of disunity, look In chapter 2, Paul addresses it there, how to deal with that, beginning in verse 3. After he calls them to be of the same mind and and one in purpose, he says in verse 3 in chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. He says in verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I don't need to explain Paul's point here, do I? I think he was pretty clear. He was pretty direct. His message is powerful here. He's telling them simply, treat others as more important. Don't be selfish. Make yourself lower. Be humble. And then, of course, brings up the wonderful illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying here, be humble because if your Lord Jesus Christ, if your Savior, your Master, the one who created you, your God, if He lowered Himself to become a man, if He, if he lowered Himself to live as a man, if He lowered Himself to suffer a humiliating and shameful and degrading death on a cross, if Jesus humbled Himself in that way, then you and I have no excuse, do we? If God brought himself that low, how hard is it us for, to go that low? See his point? We have our Savior's wonderful and supreme example to follow. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have his Holy Spirit within you to enable you to be humble. So I appeal again, lay down your arms. Lay them down. Stop demanding to be treated as most important. Stop having to be right. 
serve rather than be served. Put one another above yourselves. In verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul, addresses, as he addresses the conflict between Yodi and Syntyche, he also gives some very practical instruction. Verses 4 and following actually are often taken uh, as generic principles, but, but in context, they're specifically related to how to live in harmony. I want you to look at them with me again. Verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, who is he speaking to here? These two women and the comrades that he calls to come alongside and help them. Rejoice again. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is conflict Produced anxiety, right? Stress. He says, And everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see how these things work together in regards to living in harmony? He's not just talking about prayer generically, but specifically when you're in conflict and going to God. And God will send his soldiers to guard, to guard, to bring peace. It's the picture. These are several ways to live in harmony. And did you notice how these commands are related? How are they connected? They take eyes off of self and they put them on God, don't they? Notice he says rejoice, but he doesn't just say, hey, don't worry, be happy. That might be a good song. Right? He doesn't just say rejoice, don't worry, forget about it. He says rejoice in the Lord. He says be patient, the Lord is near. And then he says pray with a grateful heart to God. We see the same focus. Flip back, I'm going to flip again, back in chapter 1, verse 19. It's the same idea and focus that he mentions here after he again rejoices in the progress of the gospel we learn here why paul was so rejoicing and what motivated him to to share the gospel in verse 19 of chapter 1 he says for i know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of jesus christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that i will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Then he transitions to that first command to conduct themselves worthy. What is it that drove Paul to proclaim the gospel of Christ no matter what happened to him? What is it that gave Paul great joy even in the midst of great suffering and trials? Notice here he says, whether, you know, whether I stay in prison or I'm freed, whether I live or die, whether I suffer or not, my desire is this, that Christ will be exalted in my body. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I die, I'm with him. If I live, I serve him. I'll follow his example of humility. I'll rejoice in him and what he's done. I'll keep my focus on Christ. In fact, in this first chapter in Philippians, he mentions Christ's name uh, over and over and over many times. They're not just filler words. He's consumed with a passion for, he's driven by wanting Christ to be exalted in his life. He says the same thing essentially in chapter 3 when he was talking about the driving passion of his life was not earning God's favor and God's righteousness And seeking that through human effort. But he says this in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it yet or have already become perfect. But I press on 
so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's the key right there. In chapter 3, in chapter 1, in chapter 4. That's the key to everything. It's the solution to conflict. It's the answer to not living a life that depends on good works. It's the ultimate solution for any hindrance to the gospel. Paul gives here the only way to have true joy. The only way to be truly content. The only way to be really satisfied. And that is what? It's to live for Christ. It's to exist, to exalt Him. It's to worship the risen Lord. It's to strive to be like Him. And you know, I'm convicted when I read these words and I see Paul's passion and I go, sometimes those are just foreign words to me. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but my heart isn't stirred like it should be. I mean, you look at this guy or or the many folks that I met on the trip overseas. There's this passion, this drive, this desire, this fervor. I beg God that it would happen consistently in me and in us. We sometimes, beloved, we get caught up in things that, you know, they seem important at the time. They seem like a big deal, but in relation to eternity, they just don't really matter. But if exalting Jesus is your passion, then you'll be moved to share the gospel. You'll be brought to work at humility in your life. That's what will drive you to depend on His grace. And that is what will give you endurance in the difficult times. You know, one of the most impactful parts of the trip for me was uh, when I met this man, uh, the man on the left. His name's uh, Lemuel. He's a pastor from uh, in the region near the city of Tacloban. Um Some of you may be familiar with that city. It's in the central part of the Philippine Islands, and it was one of the cities hit hardest when uh, Typhoon Yolanda blew through there back in early November. And that typhoon wiped out everything. Pastor Lemuel lived in the back of a church. Many of the pastors there in these these communities live, either have a little room on the top of the church or their back or somewhere nearby. They don't have their own home. He was in the back of the church when the typhoon hit and he gathered his wife and his two daughters and they gathered around a pillar located in the center of the church and and they were grasping onto that pillar and as Lemuel was speaking, he was grieving at the fact that he didn't have enough arms to hold his family around that pillar. And as the typhoon, the winds were blowing the building over the top of them and as debris was falling down on him and he looked around at his two little girls and they were crying out in terror, he was getting ready to tell them goodbye. But the Lord protected them that day. Lemuel was so grateful for that. But the storm, the wind, and then the water that came through took away everything. Literally, they had no home They had no food, no clothing. Even his Bible, his books were washed away. And you know, when Pastor Lemuel visited, uh, we're there at uh, our missionary Sean Ransom's house there, and he he took a 30-hour trip just to come up and uh, participate in one of the training modules that Sean was doing. Made me stop complaining about my 28-hour trip in a nice plane. He had to travel in a boat and and in a bus took him 30 hours. And when he got to Sean's house and he was sharing, the, Sean gave him a study Bible. And when he first opened it and got, he clutched it to himself as if it was his own child. He had lost his Bible. He spoke of how so many pastors in his area, when the storms went through and decimated everything, they just left. They left their churches. They went to look for work elsewhere. But Pastor Lemuel stayed. He didn't have anything. He didn't know where his next meal was coming from, but he stayed. And you know why he stayed? To share the gospel. He stayed to look out for his flock. Beloved, I saw in this man 
one who was living out Paul's words, his desire that Christ shall now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I pray and desire that Pastor Lemuel's example and, and Paul's words would encourage us to do the same. Amen.